in Romans chapter 12. We learned last week as we began this new series on renewal, what it means to be renewed comes from Romans chapter 12 verse 1 through 2. The Bible tells us not to be conformed to this world, but to be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's where it all starts. A part of repentance and change is the renewing of your mind. When we talk about repentance, a lot of times we talk about the change of direction in your life, doing an about face and, and doing things differently, living differently, but that all, that all has to come when God gives us a renewed mind. Amen? When the Holy Spirit changes our mind. And what are some of the changes that we experience in our minds? Number one, we, we start thinking differently about who we are. Right? Or before the gospel confronts us, before the truth of God's word confronts us, we think that, in the words of East Texas speak, where I'm from, we think that we're pretty good old boys. We're pretty good people. Right? But when we're confronted with the truth of the word of God, we discover something. God illuminates our minds through the Holy Spirit that we're actually not pretty good people. We are sinners in the hands of a holy God, and that God has been patiently putting up with and enduring our presence on this earth. And when we look around the world and we see all the evil things happening, we tend to point fingers at this thing or that thing or that person. And the problem with the world is me. It's you. Not Republicans or Democrats. It's not this group of people or that group of people or this mentality or that mentality. The problem with the world is us. As part of the renewing of our mind, we, we come to grips that we have a sin problem deep within us. And then we also are illumined to how we are to think about God. We, we must think about God differently than the way that we used to think about God. And he shows us how to think about him in his word. He doesn't leave us to our own devices. He doesn't say, well, you know what? I'm up here, you're down there. You just figure it out. Take, a, take your best stab at it. However you, however you think I am, you, you, you just worship me that way. No, he, he reveals himself to us and shows us that we must think of him differently. Now that we're in Christ, now that we're Christ followers, we have to think about God differently than other people. We have to think about God in a way that he is holy. And that's what we looked at last week, what we discovered last week. We're to think about ourselves differently, we're to think about God differently. And as a new believer with a renewed mind, we learned last week that we're to think of ourselves differently. We think of ourselves differently, he says in verse 3, that you ought not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. There's a way you ought to think about yourself. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. But think of yourself so as to have sound judgment. Okay? And then he gets into the spiritual gifts. Some of you took that spiritual gifts analysis that we emailed out to you last week. If you didn't receive that, that means we don't have your email for whatever reason. Maybe we lost it, okay? Please let us know. Put your, fill out your email address on, on a card, connection card. Let us know that you want us to email you one of those, okay? And, and it takes a little while to fill out, but uh, we got a lot of you have responded to that and we're gonna get those, we're gonna get those numbers back to you because every little question kind of registers a different one of those spiritual gifts that's mentioned here in Romans chapter 12. 
leadership, prophecy, teaching, ministry, serving, gifts, all those things. And you scored highest, if you took this assessment, on one of those things. And that is your ministry gift. That is your member gift for the church. And it's not a, it's not a personality profile. It's not a talent. It is the gift that the Holy Spirit gives you for the benefit of the church. So if you didn't receive that, please let us know. We'll send that to you. And those of you who filled it out, thank you. And we're going to get those results to you today. I think I'll put in the email within seven days. Today is day seven. All right? So we still have the afternoon. But uh, it's very insightful for us, for elders and leadership, to be able to know how to minister to you and uh, just know how uh, gifted you are. So last Sunday, we, we learned a few things. Number one, to take responsibility for what God has allotted to you by God. Okay? To value, number two, to value what God has allotted to others in the church body. That's part of that spiritual gifts assessment. It's not just to know where you land and how God has gifted you, but it helps us to understand where our weak spots are. Where are the chinks in my armor? Where are those blind spots in me that might be strengths in you to help me understand how to pour into you and how to glean from you? And we strengthen one another in that way. And then the final thing we learned was to pursue excellence in the use of your own gift for the sake of the whole body of Christ. See, spiritual gifts weren't given to members of the church so that we could just kind of hold on to them or to glory in them. They're given to us for the purpose of sharing with the body and the function that the body all shares together. And we went to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13 and learned more about that last week. We're not going to belabor that, but today we come to verses 9 through 13. That's going to be our boundary today. And the big idea is this, that our relationship with Jesus and our devotion to God have implications for the way we relate to one another. Let me say that again. The big idea is this. That our relationship with Jesus and our devotion to God, those things that we see there in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that worship, that presenting ourselves to Him, our bodies to Him as a living and holy sacrifice, our relationship with Jesus, our devotion to God have implications for the way we relate to one another. And so what God gives us here in Romans 12 is He gives us a command on how to worship him, how to relate to him. And then he tells us, this is also how you are to think of yourself as an individual among a group of special people. The holy ones. Those who've been set apart for God's purposes. That is the church body, the ecclesia, the assembly. That's the big idea. So two things you're going to notice this morning, I hope. These two concepts of devotion and diligence. Starting in verse 9 and reading all the way through verse 13, please follow along in your Bible with me. Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil Cling to what is good. 
Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. Now, if you'll bear with me this morning, I'm going I'm to take a seat while we unpack these verses. In verses 9 through 10, the idea of devotion comes to the forefront. We see the word devoted in verse 10 very clearly, but verse 9 talks about devotion. In that, the word says that your love as a Christ follower, your love should be without two-facedness, hypocrisy. Christian love should be authentic. It should not be two-faced. In the Old Testament, when we saw the Israelites, when we see the Israelites' devotion start to wane, the very first sign that their devotion to one true holy God, when we see that devotion wane, it's when they start to divide their allegiance between God, the one true and holy God, who is spirit. And as Jesus says, the true worshipers worship in what? Spirit and in truth. The Israelites would start to divide their time between the one true God and idols. The Baals, the Ashtaroth, the Ashtarim, all these different idols. And God would say to them, you cannot do that and be my people. You can't divide your worship. You must be devoted. You must be singularly minded. You cannot be hypocritical and be a Christian. You have to be devoted. In verse 9 he says, you have to be devoted to this idea of what is good and what is evil. That is, you can't ride the fence. You can't be double-minded. But you have to be devoted. Devotion is vital in the Christian life. Christian devotion. The first thing we see is devotion to the truth. Wow, what a, what a crazy concept. Devotion to the truth. The moral and ethical commitment must come first. That is, we, we have to say, I want to do above all else the right thing in my life. I want to do the right thing. Doing the right thing is more important to me than monetary gain. It's more important to me than success. Doing the right thing is more important to me than being accepted by my peers. Doing the right thing is, is above everything else. This is why he says, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, and cling or cleave to what is good. 
James says in his letter in James 4, 17, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is a sin. That's in James 4, 17. Immediately here we are presented with something that most people in our world find untenable. A command to do the impossible. Why? Because in order to cling to that which is good and abhor what is evil, I have to be able to properly identify them and distinguish them from one another. But how can I do that? In a society that prides itself in purposefully blurring these lines. You follow what I'm saying? In a society that purposefully blurs the lines of what is evil and what is good, how is it that I am supposed to be so polarizing when I think of evil and good? I mean, when we just read this verse, it, it, it seems like something that would normally appear in our Bible, but let's not take for granted how hard this is for us as Christians in the real world every day to apply this. When the people all around us can't even agree with us on the definition of evil and good. Amen? Or is it just me? If people all around us don't agree with us on what is evil and what is good, then when we go to apply this principle of abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good, we are going to stick out like a sore thumb. We're going to stick out like a sore thumb in our family relationships, in our work environment, on social media. I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. We encourage Young people not to be true to God or even to one another, but above all to be true to themselves. This is what our society instills in young people. Being true to yourself is, is the penultimate value that we, that we send. This is the message we send through our music, through our movies, through entertainment. Be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. And nobody knows what that means. Other than there is no other standard except you. And we've given, we've given young people a completely empty and nihilistic message that has no meaning. But it feels good. Sounds good, doesn't it? It's easily accepted. When I hear be true to yourself, I go, yeah, I like that. That means nobody else can tell me what to do. I don't have to abhor anything. I don't really have to cling to anything. I just have to be true to myself. I just have to cling to what I want. I like that. And part of that package that the world sells is that they possess within themselves the sole authority to decide for themselves what is good and what is evil. We assume that individuals have a moral compass to actually decide for themselves, from within themselves, what is evil and what is good. But God's word actually says the opposite, doesn't it? We rewind a few chapters in Romans. The Bible tells us that there is none that are good. All have what? Sinned. 
and fall short of the glory of God. Paul says, wretched man that I am, I find in me the principle that sin is present within me, the one who wishes to do the good. I wish to do good, but I discover that I do the very things that I hate. Who will save me? Paul says, there must be an external good who can save me from myself. So being true to myself is not the answer. It's being saved by someone outside of myself. Abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good, clinging to Christ, clinging to God's word, clinging to what is good, to what God has revealed to us is good, not what feels good, but what is good. Devoted to good. It's like a marriage. When people decide, we're going to live together for a little while, see how it works out. Guess what? It'll never work out. Because you, you, can't, you can't try commitment. You have to commit. Commitment has to come first, right? You commit, you make a covenant, you say yes, you're all in. And so when he says, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. He's saying in the Christian life there must be this decision. When you follow Christ... You cannot say, I'm going to be true to myself as a Christian and figure it out along the way. Paul says, no, that's not how it works in the Christian life. When you come to Christ, your life is now a living and holy sacrifice to God. You cannot think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. You have to think of yourself the way Jesus Christ would have you think of yourself and you cannot fly by the seat of your pants. You have to begin day one with a devotion to abhor the things that are evil and to cling to the things that are good. Francis Schaeffer, in his book, How Then Should We Then Live, many years ago, described the difference between the ways in which the Italian Renaissance, back in the early 1500s, and the European Reformation, happening at the same time, he described the difference between the ways in which the Italian Renaissance and the European Reformation responded to the newfound freedoms in their time. This was a time of revolution and experiencing freedom. But they responded differently. He said, in the South, this freedom experienced in the Renaissance led to license. Because in Renaissance humanism, man had no way to bring forth a meaning to the particulars of life. And no place from which to get absolutes and morals. But in the Northern Reformation in Europe, standing under the teaching of Scripture, people had freedom, yet at the same time, compelling absolute values. Those values and our commitment, our devotion to those values make a difference. I would argue they make all the difference. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, uh, 15, Paul describes the way that the church is gifted with ministers. Those ministers are given to the church for the what? For the building up of the body of Christ. To the mature stature that belongs to the body of Christ. And he says this in verse 15. He says, as a result, as a result of our maturity in the body, 
We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head that is Christ. Are you devoted to the truth? Are you committed to God's version of things? Are you still buying into the lie that the world sells? That even as a Christian, that the Christian ideal is for you to live and, and just be true to yourself? Are you letting self guide you? I hope not. God calls us back. He, he, he calls us back to this devotion to the things that are good. Be devoted to the things that are good. You're like, that's gonna cost me. Yes, it will. Yes, it will. In the same way that it cost Jesus. And the Bible says in Hebrews 12, he despised the shame of the cross, but he bore it. Why? Because he loved the Father and loved the will of the Father and he loves you and he loves me. Living by and being devoted to the truth will cost you. It will cost me. But we cannot expect transformation. Not the transformation that the Bible talks about. Not this metamorphosis in Romans 1 and 12, 1 and 2. We cannot expect that type of transformation from God without our own personal devotion to him as the truth. So if you're a Christian and you're, you're wondering in your prayer life and you're kind of raising your fist to God saying, God, why don't I see a change in my life? Why don't I see these things happening in my life? in being sanctified. If you're wondering that and you're asking God and you feel like that your prayers aren't, hit, aren't leaving the room, make sure that it's not because your love is hypocritical, that your love for God is hypocritical, that, that you're not really clinging to the good and abhorring the evil, but you're kind of trying to ride the fence. The transformation won't happen, brothers and sisters, without a commitment to the one true holy God. And it's not only a commitment to the truth, but verse 10 shows us that it's the commitment to the good and the true because that commitment has interpersonal implications. What does that mean? It means that what you believe about God bleeds through in the way you treat people. Your theology has implications and is impacted by the way you interact with other flesh and blood human beings. We must also be committed to one another in the same way that we're committed to the truth, to the good. I meet and work alongside scholarly and very intelligent Christian thinkers in academic circles. Matter of fact, I was at some training, a training event this week at uh, Grand Canyon University. And man, I tell you what, they are an interesting bag. 
of characters. <laughs> Most of them are very personable, friendly, warm, pastoral. Some, however, though they know how to think and talk about God better than most people, they can explain to you the refined points of theology and theologize like nobody else. Those people struggle to be Christ-like in interpersonal communication with other Christians. There can be a disconnect with us as believers between the power source, the truth, the good, and the things that need to be powered. So just this week, we decided we were going to have to pull the old Mazda protege out of the garage. Uh, it's the, we're the third generation owners. Uh, my mom bought it brand new back in 2000 as a commuter car. It's a little five-speed. It's got dings and all, all over it. It's been through my mom, my younger brother, and then we inherited it, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. And most of the time that we lived here in Maricopa, it sat on the street or in the garage. And we finally put some money into it and got it drivable. And this week decided, okay, it's time. We're going to start using this thing because everybody's going their different directions. And for several years, um, we had battery issues. We're in Arizona, right? It happens. Like every other year. And uh, put a new battery in there. And then the other day, I mean, we had everything. Put a new fuel pump. Everything was good. The other day I took it out for a test drive, got new tires, it's running well. And then I get into the driveway and uh, I kill it and I go to turn it back on to pull it in the garage. Excuse me. And it just clicks. Doesn't even try to turn over. And I'm like, well, I know the battery's good, it's brand new. I know I replaced all this other stuff that has to do with the fuel, so what in the world's going on? So I left the key in the ignition, left it turned on, I opened the door popped the hood, I went and I, and I moved the battery cables a little bit and the red battery cable, the red terminal battery cable, uh, everything was connected fine but, the, but one of the connections was just loose. And so I moved it a little bit and then I heard the bell dinging inside the car and I thought, okay, that's it. There's nothing wrong with the battery. It's just a bad connection. See, for so many of us as believers, it's not that our theology's bad. Most of the time, it, it's, it's good. We believe the right things. We're committed to the truth. We're committed to the good. Our theology is right. But, but somewhere between what we believe in God and the way that we treat other people, there's a disconnection to where when we communicate with others, they don't, they don't hear or feel a love that is fueled by the one true and holy God. There's just a disconnect. And our devotion can't just be a devotion to thinking about and knowing the right things about God, but it also has to be a devotion to the way that Jesus treated people. We have to be devoted to loving people. Let your love, he says, be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to to one another in brotherly love. 
Give preference to one another in honor. Think of the one another's. Think of your brothers and sisters in Christ first before you think of yourself. The world says, look out for number one. Get yours. Get yours first. That is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is honor your brothers and sisters ahead of yourself. That means if there is a place of honor at the table, you don't take it. You give it to them. You defer to them all the time. All the time. That's hard to do, isn't it? Personally, I found that hard to do when I believe that doing my best for Jesus and excelling in all things, including ministry and all the things that he's given me to do, I find it hard to give preference to other people when I think that my job is to do my best for Jesus. And what he tells me in his word is giving honor to other people is giving me your best. Taking the back seat is excelling. Being humble in all things is doing your best and excelling for me. Knowing God and understanding who we are in Christ must be coupled with a Christ-like attitude toward one another. If these two things are not connected in our life, it is as if we live two separate lives or are people who wear two different faces, like in verse nine, hypocrites, one before God, another before people. So, is your theology congruent with your personal relationships? Is your treatment of other people a true reflection of your relationship with Christ? Jesus once said, as you have done unto the least of these, so you have done it to me. Devoted. Are we devoted? Number two, diligence. There are only two this morning. Devotion and diligence. Diligence is possible when we have the right motivation. Now he says in verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. That's the key right there in verse 11. Serving the Lord. When we're serving the Lord, when the Lord's glory is our purpose, is our aim, then we're not lackadaisical or lazy in the devotion to other people, right? In being diligent to serve others, to honor others, if serving the Lord is our motivation. There's a time in Jesus' ministry where a woman breaks a vial of costly perfume over him and anoints him. And one of the disciples, a man named Judas Iscariot, who we learn later on, betrays Jesus. He says, what a waste. What a waste. We could have used, we could have used that and gotten money for that and, and, and used that money for good things like ministry, giving to the poor. We learn later on, the Bible tells us that he had other motives in the back of his mind. He didn't want it for ministry. He was the one who kept the, uh, the money box. We need to be careful when we think about our motivation. Are we diligent to serve others? Are we diligent to honor others? 
We will be if we're serving the Lord. If our service is to Him, if Judas's mind was about Christ first and central in all things, he wouldn't have been thinking about the perfume that was wasted on Jesus by this woman. But self-righteous service is different than diligent Christian service. Richard Foster once wrote that self-righteous service requires external rewards. It needs to know that people see and appreciate the effort. It seeks human applause with proper religious modesty, of course. Self-righteousness, he writes, uh, self-righteous service is highly concerned about results. It eagerly wants to see if the person served will reciprocate in kind. He says, the flesh whines against service, but screams against hidden service. It strains and pulls for honor and recognition. It will devise subtle, religiously acceptable means to call attention to services rendered. I see this all the time in ministry. I I think pastors and ministers are the ones who struggle with this the most. To tweet or post something on social media, a blurb. It sounds kind of self-effacing, but usually it's to draw attention to me and my church and the good things that are going on and my family and these other things. There is something that is, that is missing in Western Christianity today. Something that our forefathers several centuries ago valued very highly that we don't value. And that is holy insignificance. To be unknown. Everybody, even in God's kingdom, even those serving Jesus, want to be known. We want to be known. We want to be on the cover of the magazine. We want to have our story posted. We want folks to know about the way that we're serving Jesus. The way in which we serve people and our motivations in serving have a direct reflection on our theology. That is, our very understanding of who God is and who we are in Christ, His Son. Are we diligent? Are we diligent to put others forward? Are we diligent to remain in the shadows? To not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but to, as he says in verse 10, give preference to one another, to give preference to one another, to not be jockeying for position and jump out in front, but to put others in front because we are satisfied in Jesus alone and our identity in Him. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, listen to these words, fervent in spirit, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Verse 13, he says, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing, literally that word is pursuing hospitality. 
You get the picture? The Bible is saying this about you as a Christian, about me as a Christian. Don't get ahead of yourself in your identity, comparing yourself to other people. Don't get ahead of yourself there. Get ahead of yourself in your self-effacing service to other people. Rather than promoting yourself in front of other people visibly to be glorified, put yourself at the front of the line to serve. When you think other people should be pitching in, man, other people should be here too. Be the first. Be the first. There's a new way to think about yourself in Christ. Present yourself as a holy Living sacrifice. Glory not in yourself, but in Christ. Diligence is purposeful. It is proactive living, not lagging behind, fervent, pursuing hospitality, devoted to prayer, that is not praying as a last resort. Devoted to prayer. Not praying if everything else fails, but devoted to prayer, keeping prayer primary. The challenge, isn't it? I was not going to mention this in my sermon, but I just feel moved by the Lord to do it before we pray I don't want you to get sidetracked God is speaking to you and you need to voice something to him in prayer this morning I want you to concentrate on that and I want you to focus on